Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. You're listening to the Maritime Ireland radio show about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. The sea around our coastline, the inland waters, lakes, rivers and streams are all part of Ireland's marine sphere and so important to this island nation. A fundamental part of Ireland socially and economically. Our connection with the sea is as old as time itself. On Maritime Ireland, we discuss and report on all aspects of the marine sphere, bringing together the community of the sea, where everyone is welcome. Maritime Ireland is broadcast on 18 radio stations around Ireland and on podcasts. The initials RV before the name of a ship indicates that she is a research vessel. Not as big as a ship, but a very important part of Ireland's maritime research work is the 15-metre RV Kiri. That's nearly 50 feet. Emblazoned with its survey declaration in large letters atop its bridge, RV Kiri makes an impressive picture. Built in 2009 in Cape Town, she's an aluminium catamaran which can get closer into rocks than where many boat owners would want to be, including myself. We'll be hearing all about her and why she does this in this edition of the programme, and that those who operate her remember a mariner who, in history, has been thought of in many different ways. Captain Bly is still recognised as one of the, the charting hydrographers of the day, we definitely hold him in very high regard as a scientist and a mariner. So there you are, that's another view of Captain Bly of the Bounty Mutiny. His experience did show that life could be tough at sea, but, and certainly not anything to do with a mutinous crew, getting out of bed in the middle of the night to answer a call for help can also be tough. No job could compensate you to get out of bed in the middle of the night to launch a lifeboat and spend your time in the engine room to help others and bring everyone home safely. One of the largest seabed surveys in the world has been carried out in Ireland's offshore waters and coastal sea areas. It was commenced by the Geological Survey of Ireland, that's the GSI, and continued in a joint venture with the Marine Institute. The GSI has also worked in collaboration with the Underwater Archaeology Unit of the National Monument Service in researching, mapping and investigating shipwrecks in the Irish National Seabed Survey. The InfoMar project is known as Integrated Mapping for the Sustainable Development of Ireland's Marine Resource. All of this work has produced a large systematic survey of the seabed of Ireland. It's a great resource to have. The vessel particularly associated with this work and owned by the GSI is the RV Keary, named after Raymond Keary, a pioneering marine geologist. Sean Cullen is head of the Marine and Coastal Unit at the Geological Survey and he's also programme manager for Infomar. The RV Keary is aluminium uh, catamaran. 
She has an asymmetrical hull with a, a wing between the two holes, which gives her uh, great stability. She was built down in Cape Town uh, in 2009, and um, she's powered with two 500 horsepower or in new money 375 uh, kilowatt engines. And she has a, a great um, maneuverability and sea keeping which makes it ideal for the, for the hydrographic surveying that we're doing. You would, of course, be working at times in quite shallow waters uh, to get into particular areas that you have to survey. Yes, indeed. And you know, the, the beauty of having a hydrographic vessel is that um, you are actually mapping the seabed as you go along. So we can bring it very close in shore, very close to rocks that are not very well charted. Um, and we can do that because the multi-beam system that's on board has a swath of data being collected all the time, which you can see off to the one side. So what we do is we run in close to the rocks, and then we can see what's inside of the track that we've just gone over, and then we survey back along inside our newly acquired data so that you're slowly working your way towards the the shallows on new data all the time. That takes a great amount of care needed at times because lots of us mariners <laughs> want to keep as far clear of rocks as we can. No, exactly that. And you know, the lads on the boat that are driving all the time are saying, we don't look at the charts anymore because we know that they're wrong. And that's the whole idea behind Inflamar is to map the seabed and update the charts um, but yeah, it takes a special kind of uh, nerve uh, to trust this computer-generated image that you are creating as you go along. And of course, that, that entire survey of the seabed and the charting of waters is, is very important because there was a time, I remember being told, when much of the chart work and the survey work of the, the whole of the Irish coast went as far back as that famous man on the, on the bounty. Yeah, Captain Bly was um, very active around the Irish coast uh, doing the hydrographic surveys. And we have great respect for the people that were working back in the 1800s because the charts that they produced were, I mean, amazingly detailed. And in fact, in Dublin Bay, we've actually left a little sliver along the south side of the Hope Peninsula uh, just so that Captain Bly is still recognized as one of the, the charting um, hydrographers of the day. And we, we definitely hold him in very high regard as a scientist and a mariner. Amazing work has been done in recent years, Sean, in, in, in mapping the seabed and in working with the Underwater Archaeological Unit, the discovery of shipwrecks. It's, it's an amazing world of chart work and survey that discovers so many things about the Irish coastline. Indeed, and in the old days, you know, it was all done with lead line and you got discrete sort of measurements up and down, lines travelled by the boats, whereas now we're getting a real 3D picture of everything. Uh, so we, we have the originally charted wrecks. A lot of them would have been uh, positioned with old technology and indeed by the, the captain of the sinking ship, who wasn't going to be exactly the most precise uh, positioning. But 
what we're finding now is that we are, we are able to pinpoint them exactly, and we then tell the archaeology unit that the um, you know the exact position of it, and if it's a, a wreck of importance, then they have the opportunity then to to advise us um, whether we can release all the data about it, which eventually get everything we do is is publicly available. But there are a couple of wrecks that we haven't told people where they are exactly um, until they've been investigated properly by the underwater archaeology unit, and then they release the position of it. It's fascinating work because I remember last time talking about them, there was something, there were over three or 400 shipwrecks around the coast. So the work is amazing, Sean. What's, what's the current plan or the plan for 2021 for research work? Originally, the, the program was split into two phases. And the first phase was to do 27 bays around the, around the country, which were prioritized for a variety of reasons. However, we're now halfway through the second phase, and what we're trying to do now is fill in all the stuff that we hadn't done yet. And we've been working for the last three years or four years from Dundalk down the east coast and across the south coast. And we're just turning the corner now this year and working up the west coast. So we'll be predominantly working out of Phoenix and out in the west coast of Clear and north of Dingle. And at the same time, we've actually got um, four boats working, um, three ribs and two catamarans, of which the carrier is one. And we still have to sort of tidy up around the the Kerry peninsulas, and we'll probably be in Kenmare River and in and around Dingle a little bit. And then, as I said, the, the offshore work on the shelf will be done out of Phoenix. It's like, hearing you there, it's like Detective Work at Sea. Yeah, in many ways, and and and, and it is looking for clues a lot of the time. So, you know, you mentioned there are three or four hundred wrecks, but there's actually three or four thousand wrecks around the country. And um, Inframar, I think, has mapped exactly where we found the existing wrecks, because a lot of those older wrecks would have been broken up and we you can't even detect them anymore. But we found, I think there's about 350 now um, intact wrecks, which we know exactly where they are. And uh, yeah, it's not it's not just looking at what's on top of the seabed, but we can also look slightly underneath the seabed using um, chirp sonar, which just penetrates the seabed. And if there's something hidden in the sand, occasionally we see, yeah, a clue, so to speak, and we can then ask the archaeology guys to dive it with metal detectors, etc. And then um, that's that's kind of the way we, we're making some of the new discoveries. Yeah. It must be very satisfying, rewarding work, and particularly exciting when you come across something that you didn't expect. Indeed, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, interest in the, the geology offshore, so the rock formations and ground landscapes from the Ice Age. And, you know, there's a whole uh, plethora of reasons why we do it. It's not just about safety and navigation, but, uh, you know, looking for good fishing grounds, etc. So it, it is very rewarding when you know that this data will aid future planning, future uh, fisheries, 
management and and also you know even looking at coastal flooding and coastal erosion and that they're all really important things which re- require the baseline data that we're gathering now. Final question, Sean. A catamaran, is she easy to handle, comfortable, and what size of crew do you carry? Well, generally we only work in daylight hours, essentially because the fishing pots are you know, close inshore. Uh, at night we can't see them, and you know, it's, it's dangerous enough work without getting a, a foul propeller. But the Kerry is very, very manoeuvrable because she, she can work at very low revs as well as at a top speed of around 20 knots. But it's really when you're maneuvering and you you might find yourself down a, a dark alleyway in a gully somewhere and you have to back out of it, that's when the very slow revs and the responsiveness of having some of the power there is uh, really, really important. And our, one of our skippers um, had worked with the Icelandic Coast Guard, and he was a fisherman since he was a boy. And what he can't do with that boat is is not worth talking about. I mean, you crab her sideways, spin her on a dime, and she is really a lovely boat to, to work on. Sounds to me like the, the ideal boat, that she talks to you and you talk to her, and uh, both are safe and doing great work. Thanks for the opportunity for us to, to, to talk about it, because you know, very often we see public coming down to the quayside or something and and sort of staying away, not knowing what the boat is. She looks kind of military in a way with the because she's unpainted aluminium. But in reality, I would encourage anybody if you see her at your local quayside, uh, especially well, especially after the COVID restrictions are lifted, um, to pop down and the crew on board are always more than happy to tell the public and show the public what we're doing. Sean Cullen, head of the Marine and Coastal Unit at the Geological Survey and Infomar Programme Manager, discussing there the work of their research vessel, RV Kerry, and an invitation to consider taking up when the pandemic departs and we can have a normal life again. Sean Cullen and the Kiri will also be my topic in the monthly interview in the April edition of the Marine Times newspaper. With her grey hull, she can look like a military vessel. If you ever get to talk to the crew, you'll find the work they do uniquely interesting. Maritime research is fascinating, but isn't it rather amazing that we still know more about the surface of the moon than we do about Earth? Yes, imagine that. It's because 71% of the Earth is covered by the oceans, and the seabed is hidden below a watery curtain, where the current estimate is that only up to 15% of the ocean floor has been mapped to a resolution of 100 metres. Compare that to 98% of Venus and more on the Moon and Mars, and you may begin to realise how little is known about the oceans on which the world's population is so dependent. Rather like being ignorant of a lot of knowledge about the largest part of our own planet, isn't it? While humans reach for the stars. The community of the sea most certainly includes our lifeboats. 
the service of the RNLI all around the Irish coast and on our inland waters. The people of the RNLI are like a family themselves, as Neil Stevenson, media manager for the Lifeboat Institution in Ireland, now tells us. You refer often, Tom, to the community of the sea, and the lifeboats are a vital part of that community and are like a family themselves in how they relate to each other in the rescue work they do. So in these strange times, one of the biggest personal impacts of COVID is just that, not having the opportunity for personal contacts. And that is particularly so in the family that is the lifeboat community. And it's something I see in my role as media manager for the RNLI. And so when we say goodbye to people in these times, it is in a limited way because there cannot be the usual farewell gatherings. So here's a little record of some of the personnel movements there have been recently in the RNLI. Mick Fitz has retired at Arklow Lifeboat Station in Wicklow. Mick Fitz is how Michael Fitzgerald was widely known. He was 40 years with Arklow RNLI and spent the last 21 of them as the station's full-time mechanic. Now, stations have staff mechanics at the all-weather lifeboat stations who look after the lifeboat and make sure the multi-million euro vessel gets out and back safely on the very worst of call-outs. No job could compensate you to get out of bed in the middle of the night to launch a lifeboat and spend your time in the engine room to help others and bring everyone home safely. Mick grew up on Harbour Road in Arklow and joined the Orinalai in 1980. And that was when the station had a wooden lifeboat. He served on and maintained six different classes of lifeboat, including the station's current all-weather Trent-class lifeboat. There was a socially distanced guard of honour as he locked up the station for the final time when he finished his last duty. And sadly, the death of Buddy Valkenberg took away a great RNLI volunteer. Now, Buddy was not his given name, but that's how everyone knew him at Ballyglass RNLI in County Mayo. In the early 1960s, Buddy set about forming Bell Mullet Sea Angling Club, which has gained recognition the world over. In the early 1970s, he started to correspond with the RNLI with a view to having a lifeboat station in Eris. Buddy and the late Paddy Leach, among others, never gave up on that idea, which many called a dream. On the 26th of August 1989, the city of Bradford 4 steamed into Broadhaven Bay under escort from the Irish Navy and a flotilla of local boats. The dream was a reality. Buddy went on to hold every role in Ballyglass Ornalai and his dedication to the service of the Ornalai was rewarded in 2014 when Buddy was made an honorary life governor of the Ornalai. That's the highest honour the organisation can bestow. No one deserved it more than Buddy. He will be greatly missed and the Ornalai is at a loss of his service and wise counsel. Rest in peace, dear Buddy. There are other changes of personnel around the RNLI. 
There is a new lifeboat operations manager at Loch Derg Ornalai. Dr. Christine O'Malley has taken over following the retirement of Liam Maloney. She will be responsible for managing all operational activities at the station, as well as authorising the launch of the lifeboats. She is a former president of the Irish Medical Organisation and joined Loch Derg Ornalai in 2019 in the role of Deputy Launching Authority. Neil Stevenson there from the RNLI. Your views on the maritime sphere are very welcome. Email them to maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. That's maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. We're not a news programme more reflective and discursive on the marine scene, but there have been quite a few coming in about the container ship which blocked the Suez Canal. Seems a lot of people had a different impression of the Suez Canal and thought it was more like the Panama Canal and were surprised when they saw pictures showing the Suez Canal running through desert areas and that the ship had actually become stuck in sand. When I first went from Cork to Dublin, Nelson's Pillar was the focal point of O'Connell Street, opposite the GPO and dominating the area. In the month of April 1801, Admiral Horatio Nelson sailed from England to fight and win the Battle of Copenhagen. As his fleet sailed out, his wife sent him the news that they had a daughter, and she was naming her Horatia. Her name ending in an A, his in an O, but she was called after him. I tell you that to introduce a story from our programme archives. On the 8th of March 1966, Nelson's pillar was blown up by those who didn't like an Englishman towering over the main street of Ireland's capital city. I remember well the news stories. But those who didn't like Admiral Nelson being there may have done him an injustice. He never set foot in Ireland and he defied the British monarchy by defending an Irish revolutionary accused of trying to kill the King of England. Justin Marr tells the story. Horatio Nelson led the British Navy in many battles, his most famous engagement being the Battle of Trafalgar. Even though he never set foot in Ireland, he was honoured by the building of Nelson's Pillar in 1808, 121 feet high, at the top of which was a 13-foot high statue of Nelson and a public viewing platform. It was one of the first monuments to honour his victories at sea and regarded as one of the grandest, though not without controversy. The Irish Magazine edition of September 1809 said the Irish public had little interest in the triumphs of Nelson. With the surge in Irish nationalist fervour after the 1916 rising and the foundation of the Irish Free State, demands for the removal of Nelson's pillar increased. Dublin Corporation voted in favour of removing the pillar in 1931, declaring it a shame that Nelson had pride of place in the capital city while there was still no statue to Brian Boru. But no one had the power 
or the money to remove it. Dublin University students tried with a flamethrower on the 29th of October 1955, but failed. However, no one seemed aware that Nelson, the British naval admiral, stood against the British monarchy when he spoke out in defence of an Irish soldier from County Leash. Colonel Edward Despard had served in the British Army during the American War of Independence and was appointed Superintendent of British Honduras. That was a nice number, but he lost it after being recalled to London over complaints about his behaviour and getting into debt. He was put into jail, which seemingly embittered him, and he turned to revolution. Being arrested for leading the Despard plot in 1802 in an attempt to seize the Tower of London, the Bank of England, and to assassinate King George III. The evidence of such a grandiose plot was thin, and Nelson, who had served with him in several military and naval expeditions, made what was regarded as a dramatic appearance at Despard's trial and spoke strongly in favour of him as a character witness. It didn't do any good. Despard was sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered the last time anyone received that sentence in England. It was commuted to hanging and beheading for fear of public dissent, as Despard was a popular figure. A crowd estimated at 20,000 watched the execution on the 21st of February 1803. It was the biggest public gathering in Britain until the funeral of Nelson, following his death at the Battle of Trafalgar in October of 1805. Nelson's pillar followed in 1808 in Dublin and remained there until the explosion of 1966, in which there were no injuries. The IRA didn't manage to destroy the entire pillar. Part of it remained. Irish Army engineers were called in to remove the rest for safety. Their demolition caused more destruction on O'Connell Street than the original blast, breaking many windows. There you are, Nelson's Pillar, blown up in Dublin because an Englishman's statue dominated our capital. But he'd never set foot in Ireland and actually defended an Irish revolutionary annoying the British monarchy with that defence. Could that be the reason why Nelson, even though he was given a hero's funeral after being killed at the Battle of Trafalgar, his wife Emma Hamilton and the daughter Horatia, who I mentioned earlier, were ignored after his death. His wife was almost destitute. When she died, his daughter had married a clergyman. And so with that story by Justin Marr, we end this edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show. The programme and podcast comes from the historic coastal and maritime town of Yole on the East Cork coastline and CRY 104FM Yole. And is also broadcast in Cork on Bear Island Radio, UCC Radio and West Cork FM. In Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Diffie Sound and Dublin South. In Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM. On Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, Kilkenny City Radio and in Mayo on Community Radio Castle Bar and Eris FM Bell Mullet. On South West Clare Radio, Radio Kirkabosh Keen. On West Limerick, 102 FM and Tip Midwest Radio in Tipperary. There are podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Mixcloud, Spotify and themarinetimes.ie. Our website is tomacsweeneymarine.ie or look up Maritime Ireland Radio Show. And our email is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. That's maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. 
Our phone and text number 0872-555-197. That's 0872-555-197. Sound supervision on the program by Justin Marr. Until our next program, the usual wish of fair sailing.